You're listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is a Canadian filmmaker. He's a writer-director who in 2012 directed the film Conspiracy and has a new film coming out called The Education of Frederick Fitzel. Chris McBride, welcome to Shoot It Now. Thank you very much, Craig. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. So you work in the indie film space there in Canada. On the Shoot It Now podcast, we talk to a broad spectrum of filmmakers from Academy Award winners to big budget film directors, plus a really big part of this podcast is talking to indie filmmakers like yourself. How vibrant was the Canadian indie film scene pre-COVID? What was happening from your perspective in Canada? Canada has a fairly vibrant indie film scene. I think like many places, it's, it's regional. So it, you know, it depends on what part of Canada you're in. So as an example, you know, films made in Quebec and the, the entire film scene in Quebec is very different than the film scene in Toronto where I live and is different than the film scene in Vancouver. And a lot of indie films are made in Canada. I think what happens to them is they get swallowed up into the American indie film scene to such a degree that it's sometimes hard for them to carve a niche as their own identity. So like an indie film that comes out of Quebec, for example, it's French, it's in another language. It has a clear and distinct identity as a French Canadian film. And so it's easier to sort of create that that space where you you know what a French Canadian indie film is, um, you know what the other French Canadian indie films that came before it are, but it's much more difficult to carve out that identity in that space in English, English language Canadian film, because we, you know, our, our language, our culture, everything is so similar to the US and the US is obviously so much bigger and their film scene is so much more gigantic. You know, you could see an, a Canadian independent film and have no clue that it's from Canada you would just assume it was an indie made in in Los Angeles. And so that creates a strange dynamic. There's a lot of good work that comes out of Canada, a lot of good independent films. It doesn't always get the respect that it it should, I think, because it it does just get sort of glumped in uh, with the U.S., I think you make a good point because uh, particularly in other countries, other English speaking countries like Australia, New Zealand, the UK, the Canadian films just sort of homogenize, don't they, into the US market? Exactly. There's an example right now, like there's a show on Netflix called uh, Schitt's Creek that is a big hit and won a bunch of awards and stuff. And it's, it's a very Canadian show. It's got all Canadian stars. It's made by, you know, a Canadian broadcaster. It's as sort of as Canadian as you can get, but many of my U S friends in the film industry in Los Angeles, they, they didn't even know it was Canadian. Why it's kind of cool when someone does manage to do it, like someone like David Cronenberg, who, you know, for my money, one of the best Canadian filmmakers. And, you know, he is distinctly a Canadian filmmaker. He's not lost in the shuffle of, you know, American uh, film directors. You know, I think people, most people understand he's Canadian and there's something, there's something quirky and distinctively Canadian about his films. And your debut feature film was released in 2012 called Conspiracy, which we'll talk about in a moment. But before that happened, there was an earlier beginning to how you decided to become involved in the film industry. So let's just talk about that from an indie perspective. How did you get going? How did you get your traction into the film industry? Because it's never easy to start out from the very beginning. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, as everybody who tries uh, knows, it's incredibly difficult. I could only control the things I could control. You know, I, I, I had no connections, nothing, no sort of way in, but I, I could, I could write, you know, it didn't cost me anything. And so I, 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 I wrote some horrible screenplays that, you know, hopefully got a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And I sort of honed my craft on my own. The other thing I could do is I could save up a little bit of money from my, you know, day jobs uh, and then uh, direct short films, which I did, you know, as an example, uh, uh, an actor who I've worked with multiple times, a good friend of mine, Aaron, we went to high school together, but then we had lost touch for 10 years and then we reconnected. You know, he was a working actor and, uh, and he's like, what have you been up to? And I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying to become a filmmaker and I'm writing scripts. And, and he said, well, you know, like, show me, show me what you've got, you know. And I, I was able to let him read some of these scripts I'd read on, you know, and it was just these little drips. But these little drips, you know, eventually build up and then, you know, more and more people start reading my scripts and they start getting in more and more influential people's hands. Eventually, I got to the point where I, I had a, a respectable indie producer who really liked one of my scripts, you know, after thinking about it for a while, agreed to produce it. And then we ended up getting funding for that. And that was The, the Conspiracy, my first film. That's one thing I always sort of say to, to people who are, you know, hoping to sort of bust into the industry is um, all that work you do by yourself that no one's watching you know, it can eventually pay off. And if you don't do that work by yourself when no one's watching, you know, you'll have nothing, you'll have no way to get through that door once, once it opens a crack. And there is so much information available at our fingertips for securing knowledge in real time. An argument for a lot of indie filmmakers is, do I need to invest money and time by going to a film school to learn my craft versus sourcing the information online and saving a lot of money and time, moving expenses possibly to another city or in some cases, in fact, a lot of cases, students move to another country. And the answer from my perspective, even though I didn't attend film school either, is that it's the individual's choice on how they want to learn and connect with other filmmakers. A lot of us prefer to be on that journey of connecting with others on a daily basis, learning craft together, which in many cases will lead to long-term friendships and collaborations on future projects while others can still connect with other filmmakers by not going to film school, but the experience is a totally different one. Of course, in many situations, the decision is made for people because of financial considerations. And so many people just do not have the money. The financial means to be able to go to film school is quite considerable. It is not a cheap option. Yeah, it's, it's just sort of another sort of element of privilege that people don't always realize like that, you know, somebody, whether it's, you know, your parents, whoever it is, can pay tens of thousands of dollars every year for you to go and learn how to make films. You know, that's just not something a lot of people can do. And the other point you bring up is also very true about this information being readily available now, you know, like I edited my first um, short on film. It was on 16 millimeter. And, you know, we had to at one point actually use the old cutting editing. I forget what it's even called, but when you would edit by hand, you would actually edit the film reel. I was sort of the last, I think, generation of people. I was, I was at the very, very tail end of people that learned, that even learned how to do that in school. I don't think anyone would learn how to do that now. I should also point out that sometimes people can be seduced by hearing successful stories of filmmakers who haven't gone to film school and a potential film student saying to themselves, hell, if they can do that, 
so can I. You cannot compare yourself to that person. And that's not to say that, you know, you couldn't be that person. You may go on to have an even more successful career uh, than that person. But let's keep it grounded from the beginning because it's all about knowledge, right? That really is what it's all about. And, and you're right. I mean, you can't compare yourself. There's for every story of someone that didn't go to film school and then had a successful career, there's probably 500 where the opposite happened, you know, and you can fall into such a trap of any time comparing yourself to other filmmakers and other artists. It's almost like professional sports. It's such a competitive and difficult industry to break into and then to succeed at once you're in, you know, that it's almost impossible not to compare yourself to your peers. I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it leads to nothing, you know, like comparing yourself and, and saying you have to follow the path they took or, and, and is, is, is kind of a, a road to a dead end. And being an indie film director, especially in the beginning of one's career, it's a real challenge. And one of the disciplines which is a critical part to helping your career blossom is collaborating with others. Collaboration, for me, is code for the ability to listen to others, which includes the ability to take on suggestions, comments, ideas, and at times those random thoughts, because we always have a lot of those in the film industry, and to then be able to process the information gifted to you. No director ever has to sound like they are in charge of the film because people know who the director is. But if you are trying to sound like you are in charge when shooting down an idea, you will completely fail as an indie film director. And people offering up an idea already know there is a, a really good chance that the idea won't be accepted. So just communicate as one person on the film set talking to another. I'm sure that there's been many instances in your career, you know, you've you've had to deal with this, this very issue. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, knowing as a director how to run a set is one of the most difficult and sort of challenging skills to master for sure. You know, the other parts of filmmaking are very different. You know, writing is a very private, solitary thing and editing is very private and solitary. But when you're in production, when you're shooting, you know, and you have this small army of people, all with different skill sets, all that are different levels of knowledge, all that are experts in different parts of filmmaking, that is a, that is a very, very complicated thing to, to be in charge of. I always say that, like, you know, I'm a believer that, you know, film is, as they say, the last true dictatorship. And I think it needs to be like it, you, it has to be filtered through one voice. But a good dictator knows how to listen. You know, a good dictator doesn't just think he has all the, the right ideas. So putting your ego aside to listen to other people can be very difficult, especially on a film set where, you know, you mentioned, you know, everybody knows you're in charge, which is true. But at the same time, people do challenge the authority of the director every single day. Actors do it. Cinematographers do it. The guys building the sets do it. And the reason is because they've worked with so many bad directors. You know, like there are there are so many... If you think about it, just let's just take the actors for an example. Been on so many projects, so many films that they had such high hopes for, and then they got on set, and when it's too late, realize the director didn't really know what he was doing, or wasn't operating from a place of confidence, or something, or had no insight into their character, or maybe that the the shoot went perfectly, and then they looked at the final results in the film and were like, "Ugh, this is this is terrible." You know, actors go through that all the time, you know, and they put their names on the line and they put their faces out there and become sort of the face of the film and then have so much less control over 
how it actually turns out. So they are understandably defensive and aren't always willing to give up their control to the director. And it sort of has to be earned by the director, you know, on set. And they have to they have to start to feel that they can trust you. And all the other people are the same way. You know, the the DP has worked on a lot of things with bad directors. So he you kind of have to earn his respect too. So there there are these constant little sort of questioning of of the director's authority until you get to a certain point where everyone sinks in and it seems does trust you. And that luckily has always happened for me um, on, on films I've worked on. You have to be able to collaborate. Film's a collaborative art, obviously, but you also have to maintain the vision that you have. And so if you're not careful, people can start doing their own thing and actors can start doing something they feel is right that will never sync up with how you're going to edit the film. And a DP can start try- doing something they think is right that will that is just not how you want it to look. But um, if they don't trust you, they're gonna they're gonna keep trying to do it. So you you have to collaborate, but you also have to get everyone to sink into your vision. And so it becomes this really strange balancing act of of those two disciplines of like listening and collaboration, but also you know making sure people understand that this is your film. And your first film was Conspiracy. As I mentioned earlier, to arrive at making a debut film, you have to jump over a lot of hurdles. And when you think that you have jumped them all, you discover that there's another 50 hurdles to jump over. Mm -hmm. And once you've done that, you land at the pre-production stage. And to your absolute astonishment, you learn that there's another 200 hurdles still to go Mm -hmm. until... You are finally at day one on set and ready to shoot your film. And then comes the whole execution of the film. Tell me, how hard was it for your first time as a film director and that whole lead up to Conspiracy? The first film is all, I think, the typically is, is the hardest. You know, that's the hardest hurdle to get over. Once you've made that first film, in theory, it's easier to, to get financing for the next one. And in theory, the shoot is easier the next time around because you've learned so much. So that, that first film, the whole process is so daunting, so terrifying, so difficult. And you're right, there are a thousand hurdles you have to jump over just to get to day one of shooting. With Conspiracy, you know, it, it's like, you know, I'm a, I'm a first-time filmmaker on that film. Nobody wants to give a million dollars to someone who's never made a movie before. That's a, a soul-crushing, long process to convince people to, to give you the money, even though a million dollars is nothing in terms of film budgets. I, I went through at least a year, if not more, of, of sort of development on that film, and meaning, you know, I'm essentially trying to get the money, you know, and... You know, like like you, whether or not I'm going to be able to quit my day job, whether or not, you know, I'm going to be able to, you know, move out of this tiny apartment I live in. All these different things hinge on the stakes are sort of so incredible in your first film. We, we kept pushing and pushing. And finally, we sort of turned a no into a yes. You do go through so much just to get the financing and, and to get the script right and all that stuff. And then, yeah, you finally get the, the funding and then you go into production, which is nothing like any other part of process, nothing like any other part of life. And then you go into the edit and, you know, you realize, you know, you kind of feel like you haven't even started the film yet because it's all in pieces and you have to edit it. So, yeah, it's uh, it's you could go on for three weeks about the, you know, the highs and lows of each different part of the process and how it's they're, they're all their own sort of self-contained little um, adventure. I think it should be mandatory for a first-time filmmaker, once they get everything locked in place and they're ready to go into production, they go on holiday for one week. It should be, uh-huh. 
should be a law that uh, offers a first-time filmmaker to go on holiday for one week, then come back and shoot your film because you pretty much do need a holiday. You need a break before you go to shoot your film. But that don't get me started on that. That's a whole different story. Tell me a little bit about the education of Frederick Fitzel that you have written and directed. I've seen the trailer. looks really interesting. You've got the actor from The Maze Runner, is it? That's right. Uh, it stars Dylan O'Brien. Yeah, he's the lead of The Maze Runner. There's chatter right now that we may change the title to something else just because the education of Frederick Patel is a bit of a mouthful. So if anyone's ever looking for the film and can't find it, uh, Dylan O'Brien drug movie is probably all you have to Google and you'll find it. You know, we've had to finish it in the COVID hellscape. So uh, everything is very chaotic to say the least in terms of not only finishing the film, but, you know, the release strategy and, you know, with the exception of New Zealand, where everything seems to be going swimmingly, you know, the rest of the world doesn't really have movie theaters anymore. So there, you know, there's certainly none open in, in North America. And, you know, how does it get released? Does everything just go to streaming? Does everything go to Amazon or Netflix? You know, like, how does this work? You know, all of that is still to be determined. So I, I think if, if we were having this conversation and this pandemic hadn't happened, there'd be a lot more concrete details I could give you about its release strategy. But as of right now, it looks like it's going to be coming out in June of 2021, probably have a small theatrical indie release, assuming movie theaters exist then and then um, and then go to a, a you know video on demand or streaming platform. Briefly, it's it's uh, it's a story about Dylan O'Brien's character Fred. He's kind of really on the cusp of of letting go of of being a child and and truly becoming a grown up. He had these dreams of being an artist, but he's kind of giving up on those and getting an office job. He's been sort of hesitant to commit to his girlfriend, but now they're just decided to move in together. And right at this moment in his life, he gets hit with these flashbacks to this psychedelic drug he took when he was a teenager. And he starts becoming obsessed with them and and uh, wanting to know, to remember what happened to him when he was a teenager. So when he was 17, he took this uh, psychedelic drug called mercury and it did something to him and it's blocked part of his memory and so he can't fully remember what happened. He now, you know, partially because he doesn't really want to be a grown-up, doesn't want to grow up and sort of face full-blown adulthood, he starts journeying into his past and he hunts down his old drug buddies. They all start to try to sort of figure out, you know, what was this drug they took as a teenager? What did it really do to them? And, and what happened on it? They know something bad happened one night. This girl, played by Mike Monroe, went missing uh, in high school and it has something to do with that. And so they then they have to sort of decipher the mystery of what this drug was and, and what really happened to them when they were on it as a teenager. But it's it's very dark and, and mysterious. And Dylan O'Brien is incredible in it. So I'm, I'm super proud of his performance in it as well. I should point out that I haven't seen the film, but it is dealing with flashbacks. And I want to ask you about that in particular, because when you're dealing with flashbacks, you have got to figure out where those flashbacks are going. When you were filming, you may have sort of gone off on sort of a plan B, maybe a plan C with these flashbacks. So then you get into the edit and suddenly those flashbacks become something completely different that you can re-edit, reimagine, put them in different places. Things just open up. So how much of that happened with your film with these flashbacks? Yeah, quite a bit. This film, as you say, like the the narrative does switch back and forth between what Fred perceives as the present to what he perceives as the past. And um, so you, you're sort of telling these, these uh, simultaneous stories of him at different ages. And 
it creates this interesting dynamic when you're editing where you, on one hand, you have a freedom to, to mess around with the structure a lot more. But on the other hand, you know, so I found sometimes, this happens when you're writing as well, but when you're editing, sometimes too much freedom is a bad thing. You know, they, they were, because we were dealing with flashbacks and we were dealing with sort of nonlinear time, we had the freedom to sort of construct this film in a lot of different ways. You know, it, it didn't necessarily have a beginning, middle and end the way a traditional narrative does. But sometimes, you know, I was in the edit longing for that because I, I almost had too many options. When I was in the edit, you know, there were many moments where I, I felt completely lost. You know, if I had a script that was a straight ahead, you know, whatever, a heist film or something, you know, like they plan the heist, they go in, they rob, there's the aftermath, you know, like you're, there's a standard beginning, middle and end. And I, I found myself almost yearning for that, the comfort of that, like tried and true structure. Yeah, it can be very difficult to to cut that together. My first film, The Conspiracy, had the same issue because um, it was a, a sort of fake documentary structure. And so we could really play around with the sequence of events. And while that, again, it's, it's, it can be great and it can allow you to do some really clever, fun things with the narrative and the and nonlinear time and nonlinear storytelling, it also can paralyze you with options. You know, when you can construct something in any way you want you sometimes construct it in in no way you know like you you just you, you just there's too many different ways to skin the cat and you end up not skinning it at all and so that was something that we became very aware of on both my films we sort of have to decide on what is our narrative through line for the story and and sort of just stick our flag in the ground and stick to it I like to write the kind of things that are very um Byzantine and and are like mazes and and don't go from A to B to C in the narrative structure. And so you get what you ask for. And it can drive you a little crazy sometimes when you're, you're trying to, to construct that. But, you know, hopefully it does what I set out to do ultimately. The reason that I ask you that question is, and you've answered the question in terms of really wanting some of that structure to creep back into the production when you were shooting it. My advice to indie filmmakers is if you are going to be doing flashbacks, get as many of those flashbacks written and fleshed out in the script as much as possible, because sometimes flashbacks can be kind of like a bit of a poor cousin. You can say, okay, we're going to do a flashback here and you've just got a, a loose interpretation. You might just write it loosely in terms of what you're wanting for that flashback. Particularly, as you mentioned, you are jumping around in time as well. If it's non-linear, you've got to make sure that that is really structured out in the script because it will just make your brain operate a lot easier when you get into the editing suite because if you're not really well organized with the details in the script the whole thing just becomes so much more difficult to tame and bring under control yeah for sure the flashbacks were uh, a little bit different than you know in a traditional film of flashbacks the flashbacks were not necessarily just to sort of illuminate things about the character or, you know, let's, let's show you what happened before. It was very much tied into the narrative, you know, like his flashbacks were the MacGuffin in the story. Like they were what he was trying to decode. And the flashbacks are, are murky at first and become clearer and clearer as he goes along. I think you're a thousand percent right about needing to structure all of this stuff beforehand in the script. You know, I, I am a huge believer in the saying that movies are made in prep. You know, a lot of people say movies are made in post, but I, I think they're made in prep. I think that like 
you know, obviously every single step is, is incredibly important, but when you are shooting, when you're actually in production, it is so intense and so chaotic and the clock is always ticking and money is being burnt every second. And there's so many moving pieces that I find you're like a military general just trying to execute your battle plan, but you don't have time on set on the day when you're shooting to step back as much as you should and be like, okay, am I really encompassing everything I can? And is this all connecting the way it's supposed to? And like, let's take an hour to think about this. You can't do that. You are just like, okay, what's the next shot? What's the next shot? What's the next shot? And so you have to have an airtight, as much as possible plan ahead of time. And you already have to have the right car there with the right you know, color and you already have to have the right location. You already have to have, you know, planned out, you know, the, the, the type of filters you're going to use on the camera, like all that stuff has to already be pre-planned so that all you're doing in, in production is executing the plan. I think once you start changing the plan in production, that's when things go off the rails. And then when you're in post, yes, you're remaking the film and you're, that's your last draft of the script, but you're limited obviously to what you've shot. So, you know, prep to me is really, that's, that's one of the biggest pieces of advice I always try to impart on anyone, you know, going into the, the filmmaking adventure for the first time is the importance of your pre-production. The other thing that I would also throw up to indie filmmakers, if you are working in non-linear and particularly with flashbacks like we're talking about, the other thing for consideration is wardrobe because you will potentially move scenes around and if somebody has got something very strong in colours, it can make it quite difficult to, to move scenes around, particularly if you're moving something a couple of days adrift from where that was originally shot. Yeah, absolutely. Many times in the edit, we try to get ambitious and, and you know, switch around the structure of something. Um, and we, we just realized we couldn't because of the exact thing you're bringing up. You know, it's, it's like, you know, the, the, whether it was the wardrobe no longer making sense or even like Dylan's hairstyle. So like as the film progresses, you know, we just I wanted his look to change as the film went along. And so he becomes a little bit more disheveled. Um, you know, and so we were trying to, to move a scene earlier, but we were like, oh, but you know, he, he's too disheveled looking now, you know, it just, it's just subtle things, you know, like his collar's a little undone, his hair's not as sort of slicked back as it was before, but these little things add up to, you know, the audience getting a sense of who he is. And so then we had to sort of abandon those plans. So yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's can be very, very tricky to, to change the plan in post from what it was, you know, originally in terms of like the linear nature of the narrative, for sure. And that's another good point is, is hair and makeup is to, again, that is a really big consideration because if you think that in post things will change, if you keep the hair and makeup sort of uh, in a similar sort of a track, there are some more opportunities to, to open up. But of course, by and large, most filmmakers will look for those very things that you're talking about. Uh, something is disintegrating over the time period of the film. So it becomes a little bit more difficult if you want to change something up potentially. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes you do get departments that just sort of don't bring their A game. The amount of whether it's, you know, shots that had to be abandoned in post or sometimes entire scenes that had to be abandoned from the film, had to be cut from the film because of one small little mistake that someone's made. You know, it could be as simple as if someone's wearing a collared shirt and one side of the collar 
is sticking the wrong way or something and looks goofy. And, you know, that's, that's the job of the wardrobe people to, to, you know, before I call action to get in there and make sure all that stuff is right. And if they miss something like that, you know, the actor can give the greatest performance in the world. You can have the most beautiful shot in the world. You just can't use it because it looks ridiculous. The tiniest little mistake by any department on the film can wreck the shot and sometimes wreck an entire scene. And so, you know, that's why I think sometimes, you know, tensions run so high on film sets. Yes, the other thing with continuity is always credit the audience with the fact that they won't pick up on the continuity because early on, I just thought that a lot of these things I could never have in the shot. I had an editor who was able to say the audience will never actually pick up on that piece of continuity that is just not there. And I said, no, they are going to see it because it is so obvious. I can see it. And we would test the film. And there were some really obvious continuities where I'll give you an example. We actually we had a situation where they came from below to upstairs, shot on different days, but they're wearing different clothes, completely different clothes. And I looked at it and thought, oh, we're going to have to drop that shot. And Jono said to me, I don't think the audience are going to pick it up. And I said, come on, they're wearing different clothes. So we tested it. Nobody picked it up. In fact, my sister I said, look, I want you to watch this scene and tell me what's wrong with it. She watched it five times and she kept getting everything wrong. She kept throwing different things up that she thought was wrong between the two cuts. And I said, it's none of that. I said, they're wearing the different clothes. And then she looked at it and said, oh, my God, you're right. So I think as filmmakers, it's quite easy to to say that the audience are going to pick up on it when, in fact, the continuity just goes right over their heads. Stanley Kubrick is famous for having continuity errors all over the place. And, uh, you know, especially in The Shining, there's this whole debate about whether it's intentional or not, you know, and, and most people think it's, in, it's intentional and it's, it's part of the creepiness and he's deliberately doing things to mess with people. But I've always believed it's not intentional. You know, even someone as good as Stanley Kubrick, like, you know, these are all hard things to pull off. I just feel like he's probably many times went with the philosophy of what you're saying, which is like, yeah, I like this shot. I don't care that there are suddenly five extras in the background when there were 20 in the last shot. Like, let's let's just go with it. And then, you know, people develop these entire conspiracy theories around what that means when it was like literally just a, an error. Well, Chris, it's been great to learn about your film career there in Canada. And I look forward to hearing good things about your new film, The Education of Frederick Fitzel, which might have a new working title by the time it gets released. And thank you so much for coming on to Shoot It Now. My pleasure, Craig. I had a great time. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.